0: Your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Adrian Belts. Dr. Belts is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, and she studies how sex hormones influence gendered behavior across the lifespan in humans. She does a lot of work on the effects of hormonal birth control on human psychology and cognition. And we talked all about sex hormones and the brain, how sex hormones regulate different aspects of female physiology including puberty, the menstrual cycle and pregnancy. We talked about key brain regions like the hypothalamus and the pituitary that regulate the release of hormones. We talked about contraception, in particular hormonal contraception. What the most commonly used forms of hormonal contraception are, the types of hormones they tend to contain like progestin and estradiol, and how those work to actually affect things like the menstrual cycle. And we talked about, you know, how effective they are, what their common side effects are. Uh, Uh, why people use or discontinue the use of these forms of birth control. And we talked about how hormonal birth control affects human psychology, the effects it has on cognition, the way that uh, our minds work, basically. And so if you're interested in hormonal birth control and sex hormones, whether you're uh, male or female, this is a really interesting episode. Um, Hormonal birth control is very widely used, and many, many women use it. uh, But it's worth knowing about uh, whether or not you're male or female, because it's so widely used. And these things, uh, hormones, have such profound effects. Effects on our physiology. And so I learned a lot about how this stuff works and some of the underlying biology. And as always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing here, please like, share, and subscribe. You can learn how to support the podcast further by checking the links in the episode description. And don't forget to check out mindandmatter.substack.com for all of my podcast content, as well as my long-form writing. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Adrian Belts. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you start off just a little bit about your scientific background and what you study?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm an associate professor of psychology. I'm at the University of Michigan, and I'm really interested in the development of gendered behaviors. So behaviors where, on average, Um, we see differences between boys and girls and men and women. Um, I'm most interested, though, in how gonadal hormones, uh, hormones we're exposed to naturally at puberty through the menstrual cycle, hormones we try to modulate through um, hormonal contraceptive use, for instance, how they influence those gender differences and how they do that in very unique ways for unique people.
0: So you said... um... You said gonadal hormones. Mm-hmm. So, what what are gonads?
1: Yeah. So, gonadal hormones. Um, well, gonads are uh, testes in men and ovaries in women. So, I focus a lot on the hormones produced by those um, by those organs. Although hormones we kind of think of in this class, like progesterone, estrogens. Um, testosterone, they also are produced in other organs of the body as well. So gonadal hormones broadly, but not exclusively.
0: And so pretty much everyone has heard of sex hormones. Everyone has heard of things like testosterone and estrogens. I don't want to spend too much time on this because because I've covered it on the podcast before, and I think this audience probably has some grasp of this. But can you just go over the basics of what are the difference between androgens and estrogens, and um, what what are maybe some misconceptions about about those things that that we should clear up about? You know, r- the relative ratios, say, in, in males versus females.
1: Yeah. And that's a good question because there is some movement and acknowledgement in the field right now that, um, sex hormones, that phrase, um, maybe gives off the perception that like androgens are only for men and estrogens are only for women. When you do see average differences, men have more androgens and and some more potent forms and women with higher levels of estrogens, but, um, these aren't exclusive for instance, um, I mentioned hormones made by other organs besides the gonads. Uh, A key aspect of puberty is called adrenarchy, which is the awakening or the development of the adrenal glands, which sit atop the kidneys. And the adrenal glands give out androgens. Um, And their particular type of androgens, they're responsible for, for instance, the development of body hair in boys and girls. Underarm hair, pubic hair, so androgens play a large role in pubertal development. So that's um, a key example of of how the sex hormone kind of overgeneralization is is um, not quite accurate.
0: I see. So so both androgens and estrogens are found in everyone. Um, they just sort of differ in the relative ratios and exactly sort of when and and how they're used. But the gonads are a key site where where some of these major sex hormones are produced.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: And then in terms of sex hormones like testosterone, like estrogen, how do these things work at a cellular level? So they're producing the gonads, they get into the bloodstream, where do they go? And when they actually exert their physiological effects, what exactly are they doing at the level of cells?
1: Yeah, that's a, a another great question. Um they'll get into the bloodstream and for a lot of the behaviors or the, the types of, um, phenomena that I'm interested in, um, a key, um, Point or or consideration in, in that is that we know these hormones can actually cross the blood-brain barrier, so they're active in and and they attach to many receptors throughout the peripheral nervous system, but also within the central nervous system, um, including in the brain. So there's receptors in the brain to which these hormones um, um, can attach themselves, and and through those means, modulate behaviors that those receptors play a role in. So um in a lot of what I think about and what we do, it's important to acknowledge then that if we're if we're talking about hormone effects or or, ovarian hormone effects, for instance, on a behavior, it's not just how much estradiol is in your blood or how much we can assess through saliva, for instance, but the impact of those hormones is also modulated by how many receptors an individual has, where their individual receptors are located in different regions of the brain, for instance, and um, the sensitivity of those receptors to that hormone, because they're not, it's not necessarily an all or nothing. Um, we, we can have different levels of uh, receptor sensitivities as well. So it's not just about the hormones in the blood, but um, what the receptors are like that those, that those um, molecules attach to.
0: I see. And, and I would imagine that receptor densities and things, how much of each type of receptor we have in a given part of the brain or given tissue in the body, those things probably display a fair amount of individual variation naturally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of things, you can see some average effects, some average differences in genders or by different clinical conditions, for instance. But there's a lot of what we would say individual differences in this space as well, um, not just differing across people, but also differing within a person over time, right? Where puberty is a key element of this. We see changes in receptor sensitivities and densities with puberty, even within a person.
0: And then, you know, when an androgen or an estrogen like testosterone or estradiol, when it gets where it's going and it's binding that receptor on a cell somewhere in the body, are those always uh, intra-within within the nucleus, uh, receptors that then go on to affect gene transcription or l- literally in the cell where are the sh- receptor is located and what's sort of the immediate effect of activating that receptor?
1: Yeah, those are really good questions. And we, the best evidence from those or regarding those processes we get from animal models, right? This is much harder work to do in humans where I focus. And, um, Yeah. So I think when it comes to animal models and thinking about how they generalize to humans, there's a lot of caveats. For instance, um, there's the representation of androgen and estrogen receptors in the brain are different in rodent models where we do most of this work and versus human models, for instance. And so um, at least how we think about it in my group is we can borrow, we can be informed by those animal models, but when we get to humans, we actually have to work at like a bit of a higher level of analysis
0: and and you know more broadly speaking, like what is a hormone as opposed to some other kind of molecules circulating throughout the body? Um, you know we've got nutrients in our bloodstream they go everywhere they get inside cells. we've got other things. What differentiates a hormone is its ability to to act systemically to sort of orchestrate, Coordinated changes across tissues. How 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 exactly do we find define hormone?
1: Yeah, I mean hormones are just broadly chemical messengers, and they come in. You know, we're talking about gonadal or you know, like we said, sex hormones. But there's a lot of other hormones as well. For instance, um, in cortisol and in responses to stress. So um, they're just different ways that our bodies um, bodies signal and and communicate that information.
0: And so you know, a lot of what we'll talk about today. Um, will have to do with um, female physiology. I think we'll, we'll talk about difference between males and females as well insofar as it helps us understand the female side of this. Um, but you know, when it comes to, you know, changes syst- systematic changes in, in hormone levels across developmental time, um, I just want to start with puberty. So you've got a girl, uh, puberty initiates somehow and that's going to lead to all sorts of changes. What are some of the key hormonal changes that are occurring in females at the onset of puberty, or what is actually triggering that onset?
1: Yeah. What is triggering it is broadly changes in the pituitary and hypothalamus. And what leads to those changes, some of that is debated right now. Um, Clearly, there's some biological components, right? The best indicator of when a girl is going to begin puberty is when her mother began puberty. So there is Hmm. some biological influence, but we also know at um, um, more of a population level that pubertal timing is kind of getting earlier. It's shifting down Hmm. um, compared to where it's been historically. And there's lots of questions about what players um, um, might be in in that progression, aspects of diet, right? aspects of um, different chemicals potentially blocking or impacting those hormone receptors. We were just talking about um, potential uh, roles for obesity um, and and some some of the estradiol production that can come along with that. So so that's kind of how puberty, begins or parts of it um, begin, but we typically think of puberty ha- having three different axes of development. Um, one is changes or growth in height. Um, another is the adrenarchy, um, the maturation of the adrenal glands that I that I mentioned earlier, and, and thus adrenal andro- um, androgens and their roles in secondary sex characteristics like body hair development. And then gonadarchy, which for girls is maturation of the ovaries and the ovarian hormones, progesterone um, and estradiol that, that come from that. Um, so gonadarchy in girls, the secondary sex characteristics uh, associated with the roles of the, um, that awakening of the gonads is um, breast development as well as eventual menarche or, or girls' um, first period. Uh, For boys, the growth axis is the same. Adrenarchy is the same. But obviously gonadarchy is different. That's the the awakening of the gonads there would be the development of the testes. And there you'll see roles of androgen and secondary sex characteristics, more like facial hair and voice changing and cracking, as well as um, development of the of the penis and testes, growth and enlargement as well. So some similarities and some differences in those axes of of maturation for males and females. Um, And one of my favorite things um, in studying puberty is that the time course of these axes also differs on average between boys and girls. For instance, in the progression of puberty for girls, Um, the growth and height is among the first things to begin, as well as breast development. And so that's why you'll see girls with their growth spurt, right, in maybe the third, fourth, fifth grade. Um, But for boys, the growth spurt isn't one of the first stages of puberty, um, or one of the first um, events of puberty. Instead, it's development of the testes, for instance, and that growth, the, the change or, or the growth spurt doesn't happen till the very end of puberty for boys. And so that's why you'll hear some men say like, yeah, I, I grew an inch in my senior year of high school, or even grew, you know, a, a couple inches in college. So, um, I think that's a a fun perspective on even though both girls and boys have the uh, growth spurt as a key element of puberty, when it happens in kind of the process of puberty differs differs for them.
0: I see. So, yeah, there's there's sex differences in terms of um, when these changes commence. And there also seem to be some kind of unknown environmental influence that that's shifting the time course here uh, systematically across the population.
1: That's right. That's right. It's harder to know whether puberty is happening earlier for boys as well, um, because some of those earlier markers for puberty are just not as well studied. It's harder to measure and assess puberty in boys, at least in in the behavioral sciences, which which is where I work. So we know less about that shifting time course for boys, but for girls, it seems to be there.
0: And so, um, you know, obviously one of the changes, um, that females exhibit is, is they start menstruating. Um, one of the, one thing I want you to clear up at the beginning too, uh, I talk mostly to basic researchers from, from the animal world. What's the difference between menstruation, the menstrual cycle and the estrous cycle?
1: Yeah, different species, right? So the menstrual cycle of humans, the estrus cycle in a lot of rodent species, and the estrus cycle is um, shorter and can be more frequent. You know, in, in humans, the the menstrual cycle is roughly 24 to 35 days, kind of any range in there would be considered typical. Um, and yeah, and, and and from there, and from there, we'll cycle.
0: And how does, so how does the menstrual cycle in humans differ from other animals? But my understanding is, you know, one of the ways that the humans and certain other animals are are different from many other mammalian species is, um, you know, for for many species, the females simply are not at all interested in sexual activity, except basically when they're ovulating, there's very clear, uh, visually clear physical changes that, that allow everyone in the species to see when that is. Um, but in human beings, and, and I think maybe some other primates or a few other species, uh, that's not the case. Um, we still have the cycle, um, but you know, the females engage in sexual uh, activity throughout throughout the cycle, and there aren't as many uh, crystal clear sensory cues to to con specifics as to you know where she is in that phase.
1: Yep, and um, I, I think you've said it well. And even um, for an individual herself. <laughs> um, Right. We um, and perhaps you're going to ask about this coming up, but um, the menstrual cycle is often discussed as different phases and ovulation is one of those phases. But delineating what those phases are in humans is actually quite a challenge and doing so well and reliably. I don't think we're great at as a field. Um because it does require constant monitoring of a person, you know, like I said earlier, and really um, capitalizing on some of these ideas of like individual differences or variability that we mentioned earlier, you know, there's any, there's a variety of different cycle lengths that, that would be considered healthy and typical, usually like 24 to, to 35 days. Um, but even an individual doesn't always have a cycle that's those same numbers of days that can vary within a person. And you'll hear, you know, some kind of uh, rules of thumb for where ovulation occurs, like in a, in a quote, unquote, typical cycle, whatever that means, (laughs) Um, you know, where ovulation occurs, you know, with usually within like a two or three day kind of period in the teens somewhere. But um. So, if day one is uh, usually defined as the first day of bleeding, so when there's bleeding that's considered day one, and when you get to the later teens, you know you'd have two or three days when ovulation is occurring. The best indicator of ovulation is like a luteinizing hormone spike, um, not really the uh, estradiol or progestin changes that that a lot of folks um, use. But even within a person, when ovulation occurs can differ across cycles. And uh, another thing we don't consider broadly in research, although it's getting much better, is that many cycles can be anovulatory. So that means no egg was released during that cycle.
0: I see. So, so the cycle is still happening, and just that that part of it simply doesn't happen for some reason.
1: Right, right. So, in in terms of changes to the uterine lining, and in terms of bleeding and hormone fluctuations, they can be happening, might be a bit blunted. Um, If an egg isn't released, and that would be considered then an anovulatory cycle. But they're they're really um, relatively common, and so if you're working with populations and women where you're trying to bring folks in during like a certain phase of the menstrual cycle, which like I said is very loosely defined, hard to do, changes across people, different across people, um, the awareness that some cycles are you know anovulatory is also important to consider.
0: And so, you know, you've mentioned, you've mentioned estradiol, progestin, luteinizing hormone, I know there's follicle stimulating hormone, am I missing any there? Are those sort of the key handful that fluctuate and whose, you know, relative phases define whose relative, um, you know, peaks and troughs in terms of uh, blood levels define these different phases?
1: Yes, yes, really, you know, follicle stimulating and luteinizing hormone, you know, surrounding ovulation. And then there's some like typical again, typical, I'm saying very loosely with air quotes, um, um, levels of estradiol and uh, progesterone that kind of mark the phases. So for instance, when bleeding is occurring at the very beginning of the cycle, both estradiol and progesterone will be quite low. And then um, progesterone will stay relatively low and they'll start to be a peak or an increase in estradiol. And that's usually what's considered the follicular phase of the cycle. And then estradiol will come down a little bit, but still stay elevated. And there'll be a big um, increase in progesterone. And that's the luteal phase that happens um, um, right around or right right following, depending on the individual person, ovulation, and then... um, if the egg is not fertilized, then both progesterone and estradiol will decrease, and menstruation will will occur again. So and that's that's the general patterning. But what those levels and cutoffs are, and how long they last, right? That's quite variable.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's obviously some variation, but the, there has to be some phase locking here. Um, you know, generally there is a you know a, a somewhat predictable cycle thinking, you know, I'm going to ask you like where that comes from, you know, thinking by analogy, say with a circadian rhythm, it's pretty easy to think about, you know, where the phase locking in a circadian rhythm comes from, because, you know, we've got eyeballs, they detect the light fluctuations that are, you know, happening as the sun goes up and down every day. And, you know, from there you, you get um, the 24 hour circadian rhythm that's tied to uh, the sun going up and down every day. Where, where does the phase locking for all these hormone changes come from? What's, what's actually coordinating them?
1: yeah uh, again another fabulous question and you know my my training is in development so you know when you ask a question like that it'll be like oh well it, it depends and it changes drastically across the lifespan too even within a person and with other reproductive events for instance we know that after menarche so the first um the first period or first bleeding in adolescence it takes usually two to three years before there's some predictability within a person for those phases. So, you know, there can be really long uh, cycle, really short and condensed. There can be missed cycles early on. Right. So, you know, as the system is really developing and then the same thing happens, obviously surrounding pregnancy and, um, and, um, breastfeeding, if, if folks breastfeed, you know, post birth, that often the, the menstrual cycle, um, you know, won't be there or at least enough to, to instigate bleeding that we can see, um, for some period of time, but that changes across folks. And then the same thing when you get up to menopause, you know, menopause is when those cycles become irregular again. But menopause is defined as not having a menstrual bleed for 12 months. And so sometimes folks can go six months, you know, or three months, or there's, there's some sort of inconsistencies there. So this idea of a, of a phase locking is um, a fun one to think about, but these are really dynamic Dynamic events and um, right can be highly modulated as well by things like diet, <laughs> by other reproductive events or conditions, polycystic ovary, endometriosis, and of course, right hormonal contraceptives can influence this cycle as well.
0: Are there other um, like social sensory cues that can regulate? when when uh, menstruation is happening. So for example, I know that in other species, um, you know, females can pick up on pheromones released by the presence or the absence of of them from males and for other things like this. And there's folklore, at least, and I, I don't actually know if this is truly folklore or this is true, that females, humans can synchronize their cycles by, you know, living or cohabitating together, which would imply some some kind of, um, you know, sensory-based synchronization. Is that true at all? Do the, the part I don't about think cohabitating females, yeah,
1: yeah, I don't think there's strong evidence. No, I don't think there's strong evidence. But of course, right? There's there's folklore, and you a, a couple of uh, studies or reports out there, but I don't think it's overwhelming. No.
0: And um, okay, so you've you've already alluded to the question somewhat, but and I, I know this is a fairly broad with no probably specific answer, but how? Um, how much variation is there between women of a comparable age and developmental stage in terms of their menstrual cycles, in terms of how the hormones are fluctuating and, and how consistent they are and how long they last? Is it, you know, is the is there just is it all over the map or is there a fair amount of consistency?
1: When you're comparing between people on this, um Yeah, I I think it's quite diverse. And like I said, even within a person over time. So to give you a sense of this, for instance, some of the best approaches, if we were to bring someone into the lab, and most of my work is on hormonal contraceptives, but I collaborate quite a bit bit on uh, menstrual cycle studies. And so some of the best approaches, if you really want to say, uh, make an association with um, the follicular phase or with ovulation and some sets of behavior. So if you really wanted to investigate, um, you know, whether these hormone fluctuations seem to have consequences for how we think and act, um, we would start by assessing someone or asking someone to track their cycle if they're not already doing that quite regularly. So when did you start bleeding? How long were you bleeding for? Then track the number of days until they started bleeding again to do this for two or three cycles to get a sense about how long is this person's cycle, at least recently. Um, and then in a best case scenario, um, we would assess hormones across those cycles as well. Because the best way to tell if someone really is in a different a different phase of the cycle um, is to look at changes within a person over time. So if we can have those hormone assessments and compare them relative- to um, hormones on other days in the same cycle and relative to other cycles, we can say, then we can map per person, okay, I can see like the increase in estradiol. I see that it coincides with when bleeding ended. And right here is when progesterone started to increase. So yeah, I can say pretty confidently for this person, you know, the follicular phase was days, you know, eight through 10. Um, and you could do that for other people as well. And the follicular phase might be eight through 10 might be five through seven might be eight through 12. Um, but that's the best way we can map these things is by asking someone to track themselves, hopefully have hormone levels, and then look at those hormone levels within a person, and really, like quite literally map their cycle map map the peaks.
0: Um, and next I want to ask you about var- variation within individuals. Um, so we mentioned that there's this interesting population effect happening where, where puberty in females is shifting to early and early time points. presumably presumably that involves some set of environmental inputs. Um, we know that there's variation between individuals. Um, we how, how do things like physical activity? And as a consequence of the amount of physical activity, um, you know, BMI or body fat composition, how do things like that? How do things like diet impact the dynamics of menstruation?
1: Yeah, they can definitely have impacts, and I'm I'm going to start to sound like a broken record. It really depends on the person. Um, you know, we know, for instance, with high intensity physical activity, especially in an endurance linked physical activity, um, menstruation can can stop or be interrupted. Um, right, if caloric intake isn't matching physical demands, um, for instance, and right, that's called amenorrhea when menstruation stops. Um, um, and it can be due to food restriction, it can be due to high caloric output, a combination of both of these things, or right to a variety of other conditions as well. Um, so so we know those those um, things have impacts. And there's I think we're beginning a little bit to understand some of the unique links with, you know, with higher BMIs, for instance, um, some hormonal contraceptives we know don't well work as well in, um, individuals with higher weight. And that's important to consider to make sure that everybody has options that are working for them.
0: And then, you know, we've mentioned that these, you know, these sex hormones are very powerful. Um, they get into the bloodstream, they can cross the blood brain barrier. They activate, um, the receptors, um, wherever they're present, including in the brain, including in neurons, um, this is going to lead to changes in gene expression and, and all sorts of other cellular changes. So, f- from that perspective, you, you would expect that um, different aspects of brain function are going to track with where you are in the menstrual cycle. Um, and then again, we've got another area where there's lots of folklore, and I'm not even sure how much of it is folklore, where women are perceived to have changes in personality and mood and and even cognition in terms of uh where they are in that cycle so t- to what extent is is that folklore true or has it been studied at all and to what extent do we know that there are any, are any clear sort of systematic changes in in cognition or mood or anything like that in terms of what phase of the menstrual cycle someone's in
1: yeah um these are fun questions because unlike in animal models um we can't experimentally control nearly as much in humans, right? We're not even sure we have to go to great lengths to make sure we're measuring the menstrual cycle well, <laughs> before we can even begin to look at things that it might be associated with. And then when we do look at things that the menstrual cycle is associated with, and you named some of them that, that um, you know, folks think about a lot emotion, you know, mood, cognition. Well, emotion, mood, cognition, these are also, you know, um, behaviors that are influenced by a variety of things. Hormones certainly play a role in emotion. Hormones certainly seem to play a role in cognition, but they're not the only things that play a role in emotion and in cognition. So when we when we try to understand what role hormones might be playing, we need to make sure that we're considering all of those other multifaceted influences as well. Um, I can tell you a study that my group did to really address this and this this issue. And like you said, is it is it folklore? Is there some scientific evidence for it? There's scientific evidence that hormones influence mood, that hormones influence cognition. But there's not scientific evidence that women are more variable in mood or cognition than are men right? They just Mm -hmm. might be similarly variable, but for different reasons. And this is critical because um, for decades in, in a lot of biomedical, including animal and human research, women weren't Considered as research participants. They weren't recruited. They didn't um, serve as research participants because there was this notion that the menstrual cycle makes behavior in women variable. And what we're trying to do as scientists is control variation. Um, And so this menstrual cycle is getting in the way of us seeing how our experiment, how this medication, how this situation really influences behavior. So women were excluded from research as a way to kind of control or maybe understand the question better. That's what the thinking was.
0: It was a a way to try and control for something that uh, was presumed uh, to be a source of variability.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, But there's not good evidence that it was really Mm. a systematic Mm -hmm. Um, source of variability that needed controlling. Um, And that an example from my group is that we followed folks with a natural menstrual cycle, we followed men, and then we followed folks using hormonal contraceptive um, every day for 75 days. And at the end of each day, ask them to reflect on a set of, um, 20 emotions. You know, how interested were you today? How scared were you today? How irritable were you today? And then across those 75 days, and we did it intentionally because that would be two cycles for most people, two menstrual cycles for most people. Um, we use some statistics to quantify how much within a person, their emotions really did go up and down, both their positive emotions and their negative emotions. And when we did that, and then we compared the groups of naturally cycling women to men, they didn't differ in mm-hmm. these emotional variability mm-hmm. indices. Um,
0: That's actually, um, did you see the recent paper? There was a recent paper in rodents where they did, um, 3D imaging and, you know, did unsupervised clustering of spontaneous behaviors of rodents, males versus females. And I I think the basic result and the basic question was, are females, in fact, more behaviorally variable? And what they found was uh, no.
1: Yep. Yep. I, yeah. I saw that one. And there was one um, earlier by Jill Becker, who's actually my colleague here at Michigan and, and her collaborators, where we did they did the same thing with physiological signals in rodents, looking at things like basal body temperature and other physiological indices to see if there were differences in variability. Um,
0: so, so, So one thing that's kind of interesting here is on the one hand, you know, we know, as you said, that, you know, hormones have a very profound impact on cellular physiology on the brain and on behavior. We know that these things cycle, the menstrual cycle and and other cycles that, you know, change throughout life. Um it would be shocking if there weren't behavioral and cognitive changes to some extent that tracked with these systematic fluctuations in hormones. And yet, you've just said that we've got evidence that there's not more variability for women as compared to men. But on the other hand, we've we got this expectation that there should be some changes as these hormones fluctuate. So does that imply that – do those two things together imply that there are um, comparable fluctuations in men? So, so it's not that women aren't varying across the, estrus, uh, across the menstrual cycle in, in terms of things. It's that men are also varying at that time scale.
1: It could be at that time scale. I think that's one plausible explanation. Another plausible explanation is things like emotions are complex, and emotions matter for them. I'm sorry, hormones matter for emotions, but um, maybe in different ways for different people, right? And here's the big one in different contexts, Mm -hmm. um, right? It matters if you have a high stress day, if you're in the office, if you're traveling, you know, uh, if you slept well if you ate well um that when it comes to things like emotion um there's there's lots of different reasons people could fluctuate it could be you know and and you mentioned time scale you know we assessed emotions every day in that study every day for 75 days um and like I said, intentionally across two cycles, but you could imagine assessing emotions at a shorter time scale and looking at variation there. So I think. Um... Um, and and some kind of some of the commentary that came out of our study on that topic was really, you know, men and women ride the same emotional roller coaster. You might have gotten on the roller coaster for different reasons, <laughs> and your experience on the roller coaster might be a bit different, but we're nonetheless kind of on the same emotional roller coaster. So I think the the other explanation, right, is that emotions are complex, and these things and the gendered behaviors that i that I study a lot um, they, they don't have one cause and they don't have one consequence. They're really multifaceted, you know, complex human traits. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, are there any like obvious physiological changes, uh, that, that track with menstruation beyond the obvious? So, so for example, you know, when, when we look at some of these species differences, it's not, um, you know, we don't, we don't, Look like uh, baboons or other species, where 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 the females have these sort of very they're literally like sort of like signs to conspecifics to say I'm ovulating right now. Um, I may be receptive to sexual behavior right now. Um, are there any physiolog- physiological changes in terms of you know s- skin or or anything else that track with you know where you are in terms of the menstrual cycle?
1: I, there certainly are, and like most things, it, it depends on a person. Mm-hmm. But basal body temperature is one. Hmm. Uh, and, and again, you have to know as an individual, like what your basal body temperature is, you have to track yourself over time in order to detect these changes. You know, you can't necessarily do a check one time and know what your cycle is, you know, but you can over time, you know, see some patterns of fluctuations. Um, things like progesterone, they, they um, affect different people differently, Um depending on things like we discussed, like cell, uh, or sorry, receptor, location, density, sensitivity. But you can sometimes see skin changes associated, you know, increased um, oil and acne for some folks at certain phases of the cycle. Um, and there certainly are consistent reports often nearing menstruation. And right, this is associated with things like PMDD, uh, premenstrual um. um uh, dysphoric disorder that there can be some mood and and negative changes that uh, uh, negative emotional changes that some people feel very strongly at, um, preceding um, preceding menstruation and right these are very real and very common um, but they're not what you see within a person and what a person knows of themselves, right. (laughs) After having this like cyclical experience for most of their reproductive life, um, where individuals can detect these changes for themselves, it doesn't mean, you know, like we were talking about with our fluctuations and, and comparisons to others that there aren't other big indicators, big events that influence emotion for, for other people, um, in different ways, you, right? Go to a big sporting event. You know, the emotions go high, low, all over the place, you know, D- different folks kind of have different cues for themselves when it comes to things like emotion. So it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't mean that hormones don't matter. They do and very strongly for some folks, but there's a lot of other things that matter too.
0: So um when a woman becomes pregnant, so at the point uh, that the the egg is fertilized. What are some of the the key hormonal changes that that start to take effect? And, and maybe this will be a good lead into starting to talk about hormonal contraception.
1: Yeah, I th- in in terms of a lot of the hormones that we've been talking about, you'll start to see, or they'll start to be like large spikes in estradiol and especially in progesterone levels. Like, unlike, um, especially for progesterone, much beyond what would be seen in a in a, um, typical Menstrual cycle. There's a lot of other hormones at play too, and those are the types of hormones that a pregnancy test would pick up on, for instance. But in terms of what we've been talking about, large spikes in in estradiol and especially progesterone.
0: And, and are those are those uh, spikes, or are they sustained?
1: Like most things, there would be like a cycle within a pregnancy, I so see. you'll see you'll see rising levels, and I say spikes because sometimes, and it depends on the person, it depends what number of pregnancy this is, and um, age and other characteristics of the pregnancy. But sometimes those initial increases that kind of surpass levels the individual has been exposed to before, they're very noticeable to the person. But then once they are stained a bit the body the individual kind of adapts to to some of those sensations but then there can be other consequences for you know a more prolonged exposure so i think it um it puts under a magnifying glass pregnancy does some of these phenomena that we think about a lot with behavioral links to hormones um such as going back to puberty at puberty, hormone levels, right? Um, individuals are exposed to hormone levels that they haven't been exposed to before. So puberty is this transition um, in in that uh, in the level, and then adjusting to the maintenance of that level. Um, and so, I think what I'm trying to say is. In terms of hormone exposures, we think of things like activational effects. Sometimes folks think that if the hormone is present, the behavior is on. And if the hormone is not present, the behavior is off. That could be the case for some hormones and for some behaviors, but it's more complicated than that. It matters whether it's the first presentation of that hormone. It matters how mm-hmm. long that hormone has been there. Um, it and other factors in the context matter as well. So, mm-hmm. so hormones aren't as simple as on and off. When and for how long and how intense also matter.
0: Yeah, I think I, I can think of some examples from the animal. From the non-human animal world, I think, yeah. right? Like, um, uh, in rodents, I, I know this is well worked out in other species that you know you might have maternal care behavior exhibited by a female who was pregnant at least once before, but it, it's not even her her offspring. But that first sort of spike that lasted for some period of time when she initially got pregnant has flipped some circuit in the brain, so that you know the presence of pups now just triggers that maternal. That maternal care behavior, or you get, yeah. um, you know, changes after through and after pregnancy that lead to an increase in say uh, defensive aggression, you know, to protect the pups that are upcoming, um, and things like that. Do we see things like that in in human females? I, I would guess that we do, but uh, you know, perhaps uh, to what extent has that stuff been been measured or studied?
1: Yeah, yeah. So those are organizational effects, right? That hormone um, presence or intensity of a hormone at A sensitive period of development seemed to organize or maybe make permanent, right? Not make transient in this on and off way, but make permanent some behaviors that that hormone was linked to. And in humans, we see the best evidence for that actually with prenatal hormone exposures. Mm. So a fetus in utero being exposed, all fetuses in utero are exposed to relatively high levels of estradiol, um, from From their parent or from their mother, um, but androgen presence in utero right that's what determines the appearance of the external genitalia, for instance, if androgens are there, um, then virili- virilization occurs, which means the the ovaries kind of form into testes and the labia fuses um, and, and the testes descend mm-hmm. into it so so androgens organize how aspects of the physical body look prenatally. And we also know that the brain is sensitive to those androgens prenatally as well. And there's some behaviors that we see that differ on average between um, boys and girls and men and women that seem to be linked to prenatal exposure to androgens. So we do see those organizational effects in humans. I think some of the best evidence comes um, from from the, the work I just mentioned on you know prenatal androgen exposures, but there's a lot of hypotheses right now that maybe puberty is another period of brain organization. So if you go through puberty earlier, the brain is thought to be more sensitive to those hormones earlier in development. And so for whatever behaviors those hormones matter for, you'll get more of them and Mm -hmm. and maybe permanently. Pregnancy is thought in a similar way. Um, And in some of our work, we're thinking of hormonal contraceptives in the same way. Mm -hmm. It's an exogenous hormone influence certain period of time.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating questions there. So to sort of summarize some of what you said, yeah, basically, you know, when it comes to many of these hormones, having the right level of the right hormone or, or the right combination of them, that the right developmental time point can lead to organizational changes or persistent changes in tissue structure and architecture or persistent changes in, in behavior via changes to neural circuits that outlast the hormone. So that even when the hormone levels go back down or, or fluctuate to a different level, you get a persistent, you know, the tissue's going to still be there or the behavior is still going to persist uh, potentially irreversibly.
1: Yep. Yep. And so we would call those, like I said, organizational effects and we know there's certain, we call them sensitive periods in development mm-hmm. when hormone exposures, you know, can't, can do mm-hmm. that. And right. There's a lot of interesting work right now in what qualifies those effects. Can you reverse those effects or how long do they last? When do they fade away? Mm-hmm. Um, but it starts to create this picture. And Like I said, I'm a developmentalist, and this is what really interests me in that kind of hormone exposures across a lifespan then, you know, layer on each other. And that's why we have these great individual differences in behaviors that we now see. You have this hormone layering across development, plus all the fabulous context that humans live in that influences those same behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, so this would imply that if you were to introduce exogenous levels of some hormone in the prenatal environment, in the postnatal environment, in the uh, adolescent environment, um, that could have potentially profound and persistent effects on the trajectory of you know tissues developing, including the brain.
1: Yes, it, it's possible. Yeah, and for for good or maybe not.
0: Yeah, um, so you know maybe we'll keep that in mind. But now let's, uh, as we talk about hormonal contraception and and how it works and and when it's used and what phases of development, l- l- let's just start out with a very simple question: How do hormonal contraception contraceptives used by women, the most common ones, say, how how do they work?
1: Yeah, um, a fun question because. They work in different ways, depending on what the form of hormonal contraceptive is, and I think sometimes that's um, not realized. For instance, an oral contraceptive, the pill, um, will have, on average, the more common uh, or the more com- the most commonly used pill is a combined um, oral contraceptive, and combined meaning it, it contains both exogenous levels of estradiol and progesterones, we call those progestins. So it's got synthetic estradiol, synthetic progestin. And when taken at the same time every day, it basically suppresses ovarian function. It stops the ovaries from, you know, secreting those same endogenous levels of um, estradiol and progesterone because the system senses that um, those exogenous levels are already present in the bloodstream. So some down regulation occurs.
0: So so, uh, progestin, estradiol, taken every day, you're going to have a boost in the levels of those. That's going to shut down ovarian function. Is that what people mean when they say that these things basically are supposed to mimic pregnancy? Is that the the direction of the hormonal changes you would see in a pregnancy?
1: The, these things are really, really difficult to map mm-hmm. because the endogenous it's hard to compare the um the potencies of the exogenous hormones to the endogenous hormones i see so we know the exogenous ones are potent enough to
0: to do that to That's shut down ovarian okay. function
1: right yep. right and, and basically take over the cycle through this kind of external regulation, right? And, and so combined oral contraceptives, they have an active pill phase, active meaning these are the pills that contain those hormones for 21-ish days usually, and then there'll be some placebo pill or maybe placebo supplemented with some iron or, or something like this for four to seven days. And when, when the placebo pill is taken... Um, it's not menstruation that occurs, but there is a withdrawal bleed. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how the cycle is mimicked, but we can't compare well Mm -hmm. to the exogenous levels.
0: uh, What's the point of doing that, uh, to mimicking the cycle in that way by having the placebo? Why why not just uh, not have placebo?
1: Yeah. Um, A lot of folks think that and don't take the placebo pills. And Hmm. so they'll just stack up their active pills um, so that they don't bleed. um, And that has a lot of uh, life um, benefits uh, for for a lot of folks. It's convenient
0: Uh, not to have to deal with that.
1: It's convenient. Yeah. Um, And it's more comfortable. Um, Some of the thought is that it really had to do with um, some of the marketing Right. This idea that it, it's mimicking a natural cycle, that folks will know they're not pregnant if they're bleeding. I see. That provides some assurances.
0: But there's so, no sort of deeper medical biological reason there.
1: Some folks might also argue that it's good to have a break from those exogenous hormones. Um, but
0: that's that's also different. interesting because if it's good to have a break uh that that uh brings up some other questions.
1: Right and I I don't necessarily think that's well supported because in other forms of hormonal contraception like the intrauterine device for mm-hmm. instance there's no bl- uh, break. So mm-hmm. intrauterine device, um, there's an arm implant, there's other what the, what are called LARCs or long acting reversible contraceptives. Mm-hmm. And so in, in things like um, that, including the IUD, um, the IUD does not contain a synthetic estradiol, it's progestin only, and its mechanistic action isn't necessarily um, um ovarian hormone or ovarian function suppression but changes to local morphology so the presence of higher doses of exogenous progesterone um, in the intrauterine space increases things like cervical mucus can change um the the narrowing of the of the cervix and can make pregnancy right less likely uh. to
0: I see. So, so, so it's it might be.
1: Function is different.
0: I see. So, with the the IUD, it's there's no estradiol. It's just progestin, and the changes. Uh, it sounds like you said that there may or may not be some change to ovarian function, but there are also just just physical changes that that pr- basically provide a physical barrier to the sperm getting to where they need to to go for fertilization to happen.
1: And at least. At least early on, right? The questions and there's also um, is most IUDs in the US are approved for up to five years. So after insertion, right? They're long acting; they can they can stay in place for up to five years, and then there might be some changes to ovarian function. Um, there's also like endometrial thinning, and right, many folks using IUDs um, end up stopping having a period but they don't. Might, they might not necessarily because ovulation could still be occurring.
0: Mm-hmm. So we've got multiple forms of, of contraception here for women. Right. You've got uh, oral hormonal contraceptives. You've got things like IUDs. Um, a natural question is why a woman would choose one or the other. And I think that's tied to a qu- the, the question um, of uh, why a woman might want to discontinue the use of one of these forms of contraception. So let's just say you're a hypothetical woman you want contraception, hormonal contraception of some kind, w- which form are statistically you most likely to get first and what are the odds that that's going to work as intended without unwanted side effects? And if it does have side effects, what are those side effects likely to be?
1: Yeah. Um, it's such a loaded question because there's lots of different reasons folks might want to use hormonal contraception. Um, And I think it's also important to acknowledge that there's a lot of folks who use hormonal contraception who don't identify as women as well. So it's really a reproductive health measure and which form is a good form depends, can depend on the reason for Mm -hmm. you.
0: Let's say it's a woman, um, who is reproductively viable and wants to be sexually active, but does not want to get pregnant.
1: I'm trying to think of the best way to answer this. I think a lot would depend on in the U S right. The, to directly answer your question where she goes for that source of contraception, um, and what her age is, you know. For instance, among a lot of younger folks, um, IUDs are often offered because they're long-acting. You don't have to worry. You don't have to get a prescription refilled every month. You don't have to keep that prescription active. You don't have to worry about you know forgetting or missing a day or something like this. And so, these are some of the benefits of the of an IUD, for instance. Um, But IUDs are progestin only, and some folks don't want to have, right, IUDs require um, uh, an office visit to insert, you know, can be a pretty painful procedure. And some folks don't want to do that and are much more content with just taking a pill. So I think in in the U.S., and in a good scenario, there'd be a conversation between a physician and someone who wants to use, you know, for that reason, and the their situation, can they refill a prescription, what's their comfort level with an office visit? It would really be these types of practicalities that drive the prescription decision, um, and the things that I mentioned about, well, these are different contraceptive actions. They could be influencing the brain and behavior in unique ways for unique people. Those aren't as much part of this conversation. It's more about the efficacy um, for the contraceptive purpose. If that's why, if that's why somebody's taking.
0: Um, How common is it Um to discontinue the use of a contraceptive due to unintended side effects or or, or side effects that that aren't tolerated by by an individual, um, and, and what do some of those tend to be like? How, how common is that, and are there any clear patterns in terms of why women say that they're stop they don't, they want to discontinue use of say the oral oral form of hormonal contraception or the the um, IUD version of a, a hormonal contraceptive?
1: Yeah, they're they're so so many different reasons and, um, you know, good and comprehensive data on this, you know, are, are challenging, especially because, you know, we're talking here in the case where someone's using for contraceptive reasons, but 40 to 60% of folks are using hormonal contraception for other reasons, for endometriosis, for PCOS, for PMDD,
0: right? Mm. So what are can you briefly define each of those terms?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good point. Um, Polycystic ovary syndrome. um, So can have really uh, uh, a lot of pain in the reproductive area, sometimes high higher androgen levels when there's cysts on the on the ovaries. Um, PMDD. We talked about premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and so sometimes for some people, those natural uh, cycle fluctuations we were talking about can trigger some maybe negative mood, negative emotion, um, and other physical side effects as well. And so, when folks will then use hormonal contraceptive, it kind of evens that out, right? Because it's often the same dose of a given a given pill at a given time. Um, dysmenorrhea is really painful, heavy, long periods of bleeding, um, so really intense um, um, episodes of bleeding. Uh, amenorrhea would be when folks um, stop stop bleeding, and um, might want to kind of take that over exogenously. Um, endometriosis, right, when endometrial tissue kind of grows outside. Um, um, the places it should be can be very painful, can take folks out of work, (laughs) um, can be very hard to function. And so in a lot of these cases, and many others, um, having some exogenous form of of ovarian hormone regulation can help even out these processes can help folks get back to work to get back to being themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, in a lot of cases, it's not just contraception. It's really a form of, you know, reproductive health management.
0: I see. And it sounded like you said something like roughly half of the women using hormonal birth control are not primarily using it to avoid pregnancy. They're using it for one of these other reasons.
1: At least in data from our group. So when we work with, you know, a large young adult population, and we'll see about Depending on the given study and what our inclusion exclusion criteria are, we'll see about half. Yep. Mm -hmm. Who are saying that they're using for um, reproductive health purposes um, or reproductive health purposes, right? In in combination with contraception. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Um, And so, you know, we've talked about all these sex hormones. depending on the version of hormonal contraception one is using, it's going to be either estradiol together with progestin or just the progestin. But in either case, you're going to have at least one of those at elevated levels. So you're adding an exogenous sex hormone into the system. It's going to cross the blood brain barrier, I think. And is it fair to say that if you're on one of these hormonal contraceptives for any significant length of time, that it's definitely, definitely going to lead to some kind of changes to the structure and function of the brain?
1: I'm a scientist, I can't say definitely. (laughs) Um, And, and we can't really, again, it's really, really hard in humans, because we can't compare those levels to what would be happening with a natural cycle, right, and to changes that might have occurred with those endogenous hormones, endogenous hormones as well. Um, And, you know, that, that's that's kind of the state of the science right now. We're working to try to refine like mass spectrometry with, with some of these assessments to be able to understand different hormone, um, different exogenous hormone levels in the blood. But even when we know what they are in the blood, we don't necessarily know in humans, these components of receptor density sensitivity and and whatnot um so so we know it's a player in the system um and we know for some people that there are behavioral side effects some good some intended if you have endometriosis right if you have PMDD they're intended positive side effects and for for some other folks they have side effects that are less pleasant and that weren't intended um and so to get back to your question then how many folks change or switch i think these are very common very common um and the changing and the switching doesn't always occur oh i didn't like the pill so i'm going to switch to the iud especially the pill um comes in all different kinds of formulations as well. We, I mentioned there's the synthetic estradiol, usually ethanol estradiol. So there's in most, almost, this is changing slightly, but right now in the U S it's largely ethanol estradiol, but the progestins come in all kinds of different forms and generations. Um, and it, the form and the generation um, is determined by the other synthetic hormones from which that particular progestin was derived. And so some progestins have higher progestational activity than others. Some have androgenic activity, some have no androgenic activity at all, meaning that the way that that synthetic progestin was derived, it can also have some receptor uh, bind to some androgen receptors. And we have a little bit of a sense of what those activity levels are, um, not active in an individual, but by looking at how those hormones work in other human or animal tissues. So we have a sense like relatively, which ones are more progestational activity, which ones are somewhat androgenic. Um, So some of those factors will be taken into consideration if an individual says oh I don't like how this one's making me feel or it's not working for me um right so if you if there's breakthrough bleeding um, things like this suggest breakthrough bleeding is when there's some bleeding or some spotting during the active pill phase and so that means there is still some ovarian function and and that means that the the exogenous pill isn't, completely controlling, right, the ovarian function as is intended. So in those cases, there'll be probably a higher dose given or maybe consider a different type of progestin formulation. So in that way, it's like a lot of other medications. Okay, this is working a little bit. Let's get the lowest effective dose. And, and if it's not working for you, either due to physiological or emotional side effects, um decisions will have to be made you tweak it a little like i like the pill so we're going to try a different pill or i didn't like the pill at all so you could try something different like the iud um and there's a lot of other options too we didn't talk about right patches shots arm implants um
0: what are um what are some of the more common, like, side effects or risks um, with the more common hormonal versions of, of birth control? The one that I, I hear about the most often that I've, I can sort of remember from commercials and stuff is is blood clotting and, and blood issues. Is that is that is that in fact a common one? And are there any others?
1: Yeah, yeah, like a um, vein thrombosis is a big one, right? Blood clotting um, and. It is linked with some types of progestins more than others, right? So if that would be a risk for somebody, stay away from that type of progestin. Um, Yeah, so so that one's pretty common. Um, You know, the the emotional, I'll say, side effect. There's a lot of conversation about right now is depression and um, potential depression risk associated with some forms of hormonal contraception as well. And some people really um, have strong and intense reactions to to maybe all hormones or exogenous hormone sensitivities broadly, or maybe to, you know, particular ones. And so so that's another one that's really um, in the news right now.
0: I see. So, so there are side. There's side effects that I guess we can call purely physiological, and there are some that are also related to mental health.
1: Yeah there there seems to be some of the most compelling evidence comes from um, there have been several studies in in Europe where they've been able to do population wide studies. There was one done in Denmark where they tracked individuals. Um, as they were newly prescribed a hormonal contracept, uh, contraceptive, and then they tracked them following um, up to six months, and they found six months out they they um, assessed um, depression diagnoses as well as SSRI, so serotonin selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. This is a common um, medication used for 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 depression treatment. Um, So they looked at depression diagnoses as well as SSRI prescriptions six months following, and they did see some, on average, increased risk. Um, The risk was modulated, though. For instance, younger folks, um, teens um, saw more risk than older folks, and it it did seem like some of the risk was most likely to track with actually the progestin component of the contraceptives, um, more than the estradiol component.
0: Hmm. And so, and that one's the more that one's in all of them. them?
1: Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Um, but the generation really seems to matter. So what type of progestin really Mm. seems to matter? Um, you write the a tricky element of interpreting studies like this is like, yes, there, there does seem to be some increased risk at the population level. Um, but the other piece of this study that's quite interesting is that when they kept tracking these folks, after four to seven years of hormonal contraceptive use, those individuals actually had reduced risk for depression. So there was some initial increase, and then um, over time, there was actually some protective factors associated with it. Now, right? we know that with all medications, if you have a negative side effect, you're not going to use it for four to seven years, most likely, right? Yes, yes, yes. Those who are still using the pill or the IUD after four to seven years are those who didn't have. So, that could be
0: it could just be an artifact of the people who it worked for, didn't give them side effects, stick around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But the interesting thing, if you're talking about like individual prescriptions and individual level decisions, is that for all of those people in that study, it worked well. (laughs) It did what it was supposed to do. And over time, you know, they had some reduced risk associated with it. Um, but there was also a very meaningful subset of folks who saw some increased risk. And so both things can be true, right, it can really help some folks. And at least in the short term, it it can really, um, you know, pose some risk, pose some risk for others and you know, where I think this all falls down is only an individual can really know, okay, why do I want to use this medication? And do those potential risks outweigh what I'm seeing as the potential benefits? And and um, that has to be an individual level decision and an informed one, which is why we do the work we do in my group to try to help provide that information so folks can make the choice that's right for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you more about Any sort of concerns or, or extra concerns one might have around when you start using hormonal contraceptives, in particular, starting to use them very, very early, right after the onset of puberty, say, versus waiting until. Um, until full adulthood, um, you know, given everything that we talked about, uh, you know, sensitive periods of development, some of these persistent changes that can be triggered and then outlast the, the, you know, spike in hormone levels. Um, thinking about things like that, um, is there any, is there any extra concern about younger women who haven't maybe finished fully maturing and developing yet starting contra- hormonal contraception too early?
1: Mm-hmm. So, when it comes to puberty, um, I'll I'll start there. Um, We were talking about earlier there's a growth axis, the adrenarchy, and gonadarchy, and how menarchy, the first menstruation, first period, was um, part of gonadarchy or the maturation of the ovaries. Interestingly, and I I don't know if folks always widely realize this, but menarche occurs very late in puberty. We said some of the first things that happen for girls are the growth in height and uh, breast development, but menarche happens quite late in in, um, puberty. And so it's unlikely that folks would be seeking out hormonal contraceptives for contraceptive reasons or for... Uh, reproductive health reasons before menstruation has begun. Of course, it can happen, right? There, there's definitely you know um, personal considerations, but I say that because. Often then, folks are very close to or have completed puberty by the time they would be seeking out hormonal contraception. But to your point about things being early, if puberty is shifting for everyone to be quite early, folks can have completed, girls can have completed puberty, but, you know, be 13, 14 years old. Um, you know, even, even younger than that and, and looking into hormonal contraceptives and, you know, from a brain development perspective, right? We know brains continue to develop into early 20s. Um, so. So that's a consideration. And a lot of the literature out there right now on potential depression risk, for instance, there really does seem to be an age factor. You know, I mentioned the one study from Denmark that, you know, found heightened risk for for younger folks. Um there's other data that shows something similar that the pattern really depends on age. And so I think this is a key consideration. um you know, if we're talking about, you know, what I call the complex calculus of, you know, do I use hormonal contraceptives or not, that has to be a consideration for for younger folks. Um, you know, if dyman, dis- you can you could think of a million and a half reasons where the pros would outweigh the cons or or the potential risk in, in a given scenario. And you can think of some reasons where maybe that wouldn't be the case as well. Um, but I think what we can do is if there is a risk, be aware of it and put supports in place, right? If, if there is a risk, it doesn't necessarily mean don't use hormonal contraception. It means be aware of what the risk is and watch out for it, <laughs> assess it, uh, mitigate it through other means. You know, if, if despite the risk, you know, there still seems to be, um, you know, a good reason or a choice for, your, for using that medication.
0: Um, Have there been any longitudinal studies looking at um, any links between uh, hormonal birth control and psychiatric conditions?
1: Um, Longitudinal. So I mentioned the ones from um, the one in Denmark. There's been a similar one. Uh, There's been a couple coming out of Europe, and a lot of the results are consistent. There seems to be some elevated risk associated with age in many cases and seem to be associated with that progesting component um, of, of contraception. Um, In the U S we don't have as many of those longitudinal studies and the ones we do have um, they're not prospective. So even though they're longitudinal, they don't, um, have information from folks before they use contraception, when they start, and then following. So that means we can't really rule out um, selection criteria, right? In, in in who chose to use and why, and who stopped using mm-hmm. and why. So it's really hard to interpret some of those data and the perspective, What some of those studies from Europe that I mentioned that are perspective, that's where some of the most compelling information comes from. The, the challenge with it is that they're population levels. So you see an increased effect broadly, but how does that translate to an individual? How does that play out in individual factors? Um, Another thing that did come out of those studies that I should mention is that, you know, maybe some risk associated with age. And if folks have a previous history of, um, you know, mental health challenges or high hormone sensitivities, right, then they're also at an increased risk. So, this is information to to be aware of, so those folks you know can can consider it and what's the best choice for them
0: I see so yeah so so history of mental health that was relatively easy because if you if you know your family history then then you'll know it um what what is how does someone know their sensitivity to hormones?
1: yeah, sometimes through other medications that they may have taken, they'll know they had like, oh, I tried you know, this hormonal medication five years ago and did not feel good for me then. Yeah. Probably a hormonal contraception, you know, um, could be in that kind of same set of experiences for you then. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I also want to ask you about, I know, I know you've done some work on this, just the effects of hormonal contraceptives on, um, cognition, generally speaking, um, what kind of effects have been looked at and, and what do we know there?
1: Yeah. Um, on cognition, so we focused in in our work and and others as well, in terms of like verbal skills, um, verbal and memory skills, and then some spatial skills. And I think two sets of findings are beginning to emerge. Um, one is that the estradiol; it seems like it's the estradiol component of like would be of pills, right? Not IUDs because they don't have that estradiol component. There seems to be some role for estradiol in verbal memory, right? So remembering lists of words, anything you'd have to remember that has this kind of verbal or language element to it, that's also consistent with some of the roles we see for estradiol in, like, a menopausal hormone therapy, for instance. So, this, this, you know, link between estradiol and verbal memory is, is not a new one. And it seems like there might be some evidence for it in hormonal contraception as well. It also seems like lower doses of estradiol might have some facilitative roles in uh, spatial skills. So, we focus a lot on a particularly difficult um, spatial task called three-dimensional mental rotations. So it's basically, um, imagine like a three-dimensional, like Tetris-like object. Mm -hmm. And so basically an object made out of a bunch of small cubes that go in kind of three dimensions. And then you'll see that object, and then you'll see four other objects that look like they could be that one. <laughs> you have to indicate which of those four other objects is an accurate rotation. The, of the I see. They're one.
0: all in different orientations, and you got yeah. you got to match it.
1: Yep. If spun in a three dimensional space, which one of those objects matches? You know the the target. Um, this is actually a task that shows a very large gender difference. There might be some roles for androgen in this. Um, we, and and we see that maybe lower doses of estradiol or folks using pills that contain that high androgen component the uh, in the progestin, so it's a highly androgenic progestin, that they might do a little bit better. On this particular task, um, but again, for these cognitive uh, findings, we do we are beginning to kind of see this story emerge. But just like when we were talking about with emotion earlier. Um, there's a lot of things that matter for verbal memory, right? There's a lot of factors that contribute to spatial rotation. And so the effects we're seeing linked to hormones, they seem to be there, but they're small on average. They might be big for some people, but on average they're quite small and they combine with a lot of other things.
0: How do you... um, So we talked about hormonal IUDs, we talked about the hormonal pill. How do the non-hormonal forms of contraception work
1: yeah so like um the copper iud for instance yeah Yeah, um copper iud is is one that's considered a lot in this space um its mechanism of contraceptive action is also a bit unclear, but it, like the hormonal IUD, it seems to work through kind of local morphology that the presence of copper intrauterine, for instance, in the intrauterine environment increases local inflammation, right? And that local inflammation ends up thickening cervical mucus and providing some contraceptive action. So it's not interplaying with the The ovarian hormone levels; it's influencing the the local morphology.
0: Mm -hmm. Does that have any, uh, you know, potential negative consequences of of chronic sort of chronic local inflammation? There,
1: I'm honestly not sure. I can say that the copper IUD, right, right, some like everything we've talked about. Some folks love it, but on average, it's not incredibly well tolerated. um pain a lot of uh, a lot of complaints of um, increased bleeding um, or, or or longer bleeding so there's huge individual differences in response to it.
0: Well um we've covered a lot already and I've already learned quite a bit. Um, is there anything that you think is important to reiterate or or about anything that we talked about or any sort of final thoughts on this general subject that you'd like to leave people with?
1: Yeah I think, One thing we didn't really talk about, but um, maybe indirectly, we've kind of referenced it. So it might be important to say directly is we've talked indirectly about how um, gonadal hormones and hormonal contraceptives, specifically, they obviously are working somehow in the human brain, right? How are they working? Are best evidence comes from non-human animal models where this can be done experimentally and and manipulated in that way. Um, But kind of as we've talked about influences on behavior and on cognition, we said, well, they're doing something in the brain and then they influence behavior and cognition the human neuroscience research on what exactly they're doing in the brain is really really at its beginning stages and so sometimes some of these studies come out and say ah oh, hormones change the brain it's like of course they do right the, the brain is an endocrine organ obviously <laughs> you know our brains have evolved to be changed by hormones um so so some of those um approaches are are a bit obvious and the, the science in this space is exciting and it's emerging, but it is not conclusive yet for, for the, the good or the bad, if you will. And I think the important part to emphasize about all my work and really why we're in this space is to understand individuals. If we can figure out where risk is increased and where hormones are having positive impacts for some people and... and um, um, identify factors that might matter for that relationship, then we can provide individuals with more information, the information they need to make the choices that are best for them, right? Only they can weigh how the different pros and cons matter. So kind of wide sweeping, you know, this is good or this is bad, isn't really helpful in some ways because there's individuals at all places of that decision pipeline who have to make choices that are unique for them. And so I'm hoping some of the work we do just helps helps inform that so folks can be the healthiest versions of themselves possible.
0: All right, Dr. Adrian Belts, thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Hey, everyone.
0: I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.